Hello and welcome to Left, Right and Center. I'm Vishnu Shom. We continue to bring you our special programming from the World Economic Forum in Davos. On the program today, some of the world's biggest thinkers and industrialists on a key theme which is being looked at in Davos, artificial intelligence. We look at the key theme of sentience and artificial intelligence. We look at the future of satellite imagery and democratizing the availability of satellite imagery. We also look at the reform of multilateral development banks. Key issues being looked at at the World Economic Forum. Join us in these special interviews. One of the key themes of the World Economic Forum meet in Davos, Switzerland this time is artificial intelligence, um, generative AI as well. What is the future over there? We've got a, a wonderful guest with us who knows a thing or two about this theme. Uh, Gary Cohn, Vice Chairperson of IBM. Thank you very much, sir, for being with us. Um, WEF this time and AI almost synonymous in so many senses. There are so many around the world, and let me ask you this question first, who feel that AI would mean a loss of jobs. How would you address that? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Look, I think AI is very important, and we're just starting to understand how important it is. Many of us, many of us have been living with AI in our lives, and I don't think we've realized it, whether it's you know mapping. We all use mapping yeah. apps to get places. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a song list mm -hmm. and how a, a, you, you, someone suggests a song for you. Now AI is be beginning to evolve into more of a corporate backbone entity. Yeah. It's becoming more and more important to the way we do business. Mm -hmm. And look, AI will, it will replace some of the man menial tasks that people don't like doing. Mm -hmm. Tasks where you have high turnover and high job dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. But historically, every time we've seen a great technological revolution, or a seismic evolution in, pro in, in, in new technology, we've seen companies get bigger and bigger. Right. In fact, I, I, I'm part of the um, WEF AI Governance yeah. Committee, yeah. and I made this point this morning. Mm -hmm. I said, I dare anyone in this room to show me a technological innovation that made companies smaller yeah. and actually decreased the headcount of companies. And at IBM, we're actually living proof of this. Yeah. You know, we have used AI. Yeah to remove some of the jobs that we have in areas where people aren't happy doing the jobs, but we haven't gotten rid of those people. We've moved them to places where they can be more productive, more, more productive and be more, more client-facing and help us drive our business. So essentially a shift of employment structures, right? People yeah. who are employed in one area may end up elsewhere. The overall numbers would be the same if anything they might draw. Yeah. Is what this the history of this tells us that when businesses become more productive, yeah. they tend to grow. Right. They don't tend to shrink in size. They right. tend to take the opportunity of taking those employees and redeploying them into higher value added jobs. Sure. And that's what I'm seeing in IBM, and I think other companies are seeing that as well. Let me ask you uh, the, the, the question which affects so many people. Uh, AI is intelligent, it's growing. There are some who've said that um, some systems are, are approaching sentience. Others have said, no, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, IBM deals with some of the most state-of-the-art systems and technologies and ideas when it comes to AI. Uh, is there going to be a time when, you know, uh, computers can really start thinking for themselves? Well, look, when you talk about AI, and a lot of the discussion going on here in Davos is about trust. Yeah. It's about trust and governance. So what's in the AI machine? You know, for AI to really be successful and for it to be the next leg in global productivity, and we all know to grow, to grow the global economy, we need to be more productive. Right. People are going to have to trust AI. 
And you get trust by having great global governance. Mm -hmm. And it's not country by country because, remember, AI is cloud-based. Yeah. So companies can move their AI product almost anywhere around the world. Yeah. So we're going to need global coordination on how we regulate AI. And I think we're going to need corporate disclosure. So we believe in a lot of disclosure. What does your AI product do? Where does it get its data? Yeah. Are you protecting copyrights? What does it do with the data? Yeah. Have you tested the outcomes? Are the outcomes biased? Have you tested against bias? Yeah. The more companies in the enterprise level where, where, where yeah. we transact, the more you're willing to disclose what your AI does, how you do it, and how you protect data, I think the more people are going to trust it. If people wanted to live in a black box, I think we're going to have a, a, a bunch of real issues. We, we at IBM believe that it's got to be very transparent, it's got to be open source, and we've got to have real transparent governance on AI. And in fact, Watson X, which is our AI platform, has a big governance profile in it. But you haven't quite answered my question. Uh, are, are we approaching sentience technology-wise? Are, are these computers really thinking for themselves? Are they sensitive? Uh, can they, uh, you know, I mean, are, are they in a sense like us? Well, at the end of the day, every computer has to be programmed. Right, true. So at the end of the day, a human being is starting to write the programming. Now, can the computer be taught to get smarter based on the occurrence of yesterday? Yes, the computer gets smarter. Artificial intelligence gets smarter by going through the activity. Yes. But at the root, some individual or some team of individuals wrote the initial code. So I think that you have to understand that we, as human beings, are at the core of creating the AI, creating the AI product. Right. Um, there's also the entire issue of, uh, of availability, uh, the fact that um, um, it's not necessarily, some countries may be having the technology, their proprietary issues, there are cost issues as well. Shouldn't there be an egalitarian spread of, of, of AI? Isn't that a, a problem going forward? Look, it, it, it clearly is a problem, and I think it's an opportunity. I look, at, I look at all problems as opportunities. Sure. You know, yes, you're seeing AI develop in some of the wealthier countries, yeah. and the wealthier countries are ahead. But to the extent that it can, can be democratized through the world and become more and more available and create a better lifestyle, and it's got enormous opportunities, whether just not just be in jobs and job satisfaction and upscaling people's la labor and taking, you know, uneducated labor and making them more productive because the machine helps them in their job and actually educa educates them. Think of what it can do in the medical space, in the medical care, in the education space. So I think AI has an opportunity to really spread itself throughout the world and bring the world up as well. Now, look, it's being developed in some of the wealthier countries, but I think all of the, all of the, the businesses involved think that this is going to be pushed down throughout the world. Another basic question, you mentioned the word education and AI. You've got kids doing research on ChatGPT and other platforms, and, the, and so education sort of gets tossed out the window. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? Well, you've got kids doing research on ChatGPT. At the same time, the academic institutions they're turning the research into are going to use AI to determine if the kids did the research or, or ChatGPT did the research. So it, it's, a, it's a very interesting circle to actually figure out if, if people did the work or AI did the work, and we'll yeah. use AI to figure out who actually did the work. What about regulation? Um, the fact that, as you and we were discussing this earlier on, there need to be global standards uh, of what goes and what doesn't. Uh, how important is that? I think it's extremely important. I think regulation is the backbone of success for AI globally. If we really see AI proliferate 
and we really see it change the way we live our lives, it's going to be because we have global, trusted, transparent regulation. Right. If we don't get that, we'll have pools of AI around the world where we'll see some economies of scale, yeah. but we won't, have global, we won't have a global AI effect. Yeah. And, and look, I think that, that we're seeing pretty good signs. You know, Europe has been pretty aggressive on AI. Um, the U.S. is it caught up relatively quickly. There's a lot going on in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Sure. So I think the regulators understand that we have to have global, coherent regulation. Yeah. One final question. Um, you know, the, the India story has been quite positive over the last several years, certainly when it comes to high tech. Yes. Uh, how does IBM see India going forward? Uh, you know, I mean, are you going to be growing more in yeah. the future? Well, look, India has been crucial to IBM's success so far, and it's going to continue to pay, play an even more important part in our expansion, not only in the AI world, but in all of our other businesses, in the consulting business, and the other areas where we provide services to our clients. India is very important for us and will continue to be very important. Wonderful speaking to you, sir. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Uh, Mr. Kuntler, telling us a little bit about the future of AI. A uh, couple of questions there on sentience and AI. I'm not sure we got all the answers over there, but certainly it is transformative technology uh, going forward. Where is this really going to lead us? One of the key themes of the World Economic Forum meet in Davos, Switzerland this year is artificial intelligence, AI and the future of employment, AI and the technology which exists presently, uh, generative AI, what are some of the key trends? Uh, we've been talking to leaders across the board and uh, we're delighted to uh, be speaking to Deloitte as well. We've got two wonderful guests with us. Nitin Mittal is the global generative AI leader of Deloitte, travels all over the world with uh, AI solutions and Romal Chetty is the CEO of Deloitte South Asia, thank you both very much for being with us. Now, I've gone through some of the key points of your latest report. It's the AI survey, state of generative AI, um, you know, with an enterprise now decides next. Uh, quite a mouthful, uh, but it really is a massive survey that you've done of almost 3,000 individuals. Um, what have some of the perspectives been? Are there, is there a lot of divergence or is there a sense that we really need to do something before we get into the specifics? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, first off, uh, uh, thank you for ha actually having us on here. And uh, since you kind of mentioned uh, the survey, there's uh, perhaps a few things that uh, I would call out. The first is there's an overwhelming sense of excitement. Right. It was absolutely clear from the survey that that sense of excitement is overwhelming and it's palpable in the responses that we got. The second aspect of it, is that if you take the vast majority of the respondents, and these represent enterprises and organizations in 16 countries around the world, and uh, certainly kind of the top uh, and the largest GDPs uh, in uh, our world. And what is kind of clear from there is that 79% of the respondents and enterprises are absolutely expecting that their organizations are going to be transformed. Right. And they're going to be transformed in a short window of anywhere from one to three years. And where they think the transformation would start, and this is again a data point from the survey, where more than 50% of the respondents believe that it is going to essentially start from efficiency, productivity, and cost reduction. That's the first wave before innovation and growth, perhaps being the second wave. What are some of the reactions that you're getting in India, firstly in very broad terms? So one, I think the Indian participation is also significant. I think we are uh, number two in terms of participation, over 200 respondents. 
uh, clearly in the Indian boardrooms, uh, as well as, of course, you know, uh, coming out of the survey, there's a lot more conversation around AI. There's a lot more conversation around how it's going to disrupt their business models and a lot more conversation around skilling. Yeah. Uh, because that's also an important element. So yeah. clearly, India is sort of in the same phase of uh, uh, what's happening globally. But the interest, at least I would say, is, is a little bit more because we're number two just after the US. Sure. You know, talent retention is obviously something which uh, is a bit of a concern. There are employees around the world saying that, oh, am I going to lose my job? Is AI going to replace me? Organizations looking at whether that is possible or not uh, as a cost-cutting uh, measure. So uh, how do organizations deal with, for example, talent retention, um, issues of risk and governance? Yeah, now this is a topic, uh, frankly, that is uh, of concern and being deliberated uh, by not only enterprises, but also many government agencies. And uh, in my sort of uh, global role, we uh, tend to see this uh, practically every economy. It doesn't matter whether it's an OECD, whether it's an emerging economy, we kind of uh, tend to see this. What I would kind of say is this. Yes, there is the concern as it relates to potential job losses. Right. But, frankly, the history of uh, the advancement of technology through different eras have always shown that there's the initial concern around job losses because of the unknown, because of the change. And we, from a human uh, species, always essentially kind of uh, have that trepidation of uh, change. But history has also shown us that inevitably, as the technology kind of gets mainstream, as it is adopted, and people start understanding, comprehending, and learning, it actually leads to better forms of doing work. It leads to a higher quality of work that is actually kind of conducted. It leads to an elevated experience. And at the end of the day, it ends up creating a lot more jobs. Right. That is ex absolutely expected, even with generative AI. Now, the type of jobs will certainly change. It doesn't necessarily mean there would be less jobs in society or less jobs in businesses. But what we do, where we are expected to focus, what we are expected to learn and how we have to adapt is something that we have to be very thoughtful of. There's the entire issue of inequality as well, uh, the worry that some of the AI being developed, and of course there are different solutions for different companies. A is very expensive. B, it could be heavily uh, proprietal. Therefore, some countries, some organizations, different parts of the world may not be able to afford it may not be able to get it even if they want it. Is that a worry? It is a worry. It is a worry. And, and I mean, just coming to a point which Nathan will add, and I'll come back to inequality. I think two things. One is if you look at AI, finally, is based on data. Mm. Right? You need data to do whatever algorithms you want to design and create. Still less than 4 or 5% of the world is connected. Mm. So the opportunity to connect a large part of the world, every device possible, mm. That means the amount of digitization that is still left. And then the second bit is, as I think Nitin mentioned, when computers came in as well, they were supposed to remove all the jobs, right? Right. So I think um, the repositioning, reskinning, uh, enhancing, I think is, is very critical. And, yeah. and we see that uh, a lot happening with organizations and in India, mm -hmm. also state governments and central government being very focused on skilling, especially with respect to AI, because that's one part of, you know, we've got a huge bunch of software developers, mm -hmm. but that transition from software to actually for, to an AI 
it's a bit of a transition. It's not an easy transition. Yeah. But it's also a, it's something that all state governments are looking in, creating various policies, creating various subsidies. So there's there's a lot of stuff happening there. Now coming to the question of inequality, clearly the bigger corporations have a lot more money. Yeah. Have a lot more data. So in some sense, <laughs> will they um, run away from the smaller corporations? That obviously is is a big challenge. Uh, it's also the the resources that the smaller uh, ones have, they will struggle as well. Uh, so those are things that we need to keep in mind. That it's, um, it's important that while we build AI, the regulation is also important, and there is enough focus on the regulation. At the same time, ensuring that innovation does not uh, break down, and at least from a data point, from an India perspective, uh, Nathan knows more, but is that clearly India Inc. and the government seems to be embracing you have to say that let's change things uh, with a balanced risk model rather than only detrimental. So I think it's a combination of both. Let's just look at the word uh, risk from a slightly different perspective. Um, AI has evolved to such a point when there is an open discourse on whether it is approaching sentience in, in certain cases, and that's been denied at many levels. Some suggest that, no, in fact, we may be close to that. But the real body is um, how far do we allow AI to, to, to go to get ahead? And I think uh, one of the key issues around the world is there needs to be legislation, which ensures, which is followed by several countries, uh, to ensure that you know this is as far as we are willing to go right now. How important is that legislation? Legislation is important, but let's actually kind of think of it from two dimensions. One dimension is risks associated with business, and then risks associated with society. And technology, right? I suppose. Uh, yes, technology kind of underpins both, right? Underpins both those two dimensions. The greatest, perhaps, risk of business is the risks of obsolescence. In terms of, are they going to be able to thrive tomorrow? That is the risk that many organizations are going to grapple. That is not necessarily the case for society. In society, you've got different type of risks. You've got risks associated with bias. You've got risks associated with content that is generated, which happens to be deep fakes, which is very topical kind of right now. You've got risks associated with furthering kind of the inequalities that kind of exist. So those risks are absolutely uh, out there and cannot be denied. The role of many governments working alongside the private sector would be to develop frameworks that balance risks with innovation. Right. It has to be done in a balanced manner. Balance is key over here. Right. Particularly for emerging economies, the opportunities that could be harnessed through a generative AI, such as in education, would generative AI increase uh, inequalities in education? Or is generative AI going to democratize access to uh, education through personal tutors, particularly to your underprivileged? So we have to basically kind of think of how you're harnessing generative AI for the betterment of society, but doing it in a prudent manner so that you're able to weed out some of the risks associated with it, such as deepfakes. A final question to you. It's obviously not one solution fits all. Uh, let's look ahead into the future, three, four years. Will there be a plethora of companies offering customized solutions uh, that you can just sort of download apps or you can work with certain companies who offer you solutions? What is the, what is the world going to be like, the corporate world uh, with AI? So one is, as, as we've seen in our survey as well, I think... Uh, the focus will be a lot more on business models. So can I 
integrate AI into building newer business models. So I think that is the first part, rather than only the cost reduction, the you know, productivity efficiency, which are very important right, and the, the right phase. But I think that's what we dare see a lot more. Um, second is also in terms of, you know, um, India obviously has a, a significant bunch of startups and others. Yeah. So you will see one shift, and, I, and I'm, I'm hoping to see that shift, is to move from software services to product development yeah. because AI is a lot more pro and that's a that's a real big mindset shift because software development is different services to a product development and I think in the three four years we will see that third is there will be a lot more plug and play yes but also a deeper understanding of what kind of other models that you need to use right because uh, what can go out and what can remain within your enterprise that is also extremely important but some of it for example which are more more optimistic is things like pharma right so for example you know most uh medicines that were built were supposed to cure something but they actually finally cured something else right with the kind of data that you actually have you may be able to estimate that much better in terms of saying that this will be actually be able to solve this particular problem so that is that i think is is significant yeah. uh, including speeding up things like cancer and other sure. things much more yeah so widespread uh, applications. Thank you both very much for being with us. The worry in my mind is that news anchors like me might end up becoming redundant uh, in the future. But uh, that's a thought for the future. We leave you with one statistic. 79% of respondents um, in this massive survey done by Deloitte expect generative AI to drive organizational transformation. It's upon us. How will the world, how will organizations accept this change? One of the most exciting chains in India, the Vedanta Group over here uh, in the World Economic Forum in Davos as well. They are involved in so many areas which have a significant bearing on India's economy. Uh, Priya Garwal Hebar joins us. Thank you very much, uh, Priya, for being with us. Um, now, you know, your group is, is, is diverse. You deal with so many areas. But one of the areas which is really interesting is the semiconductor space. And I know there are announcements which will be made. But why has Vedanta uh, put so much faith in semiconductors as being a critical part of the Indian economy. Um, yeah. got, okay. uh, so thank you for having me here, first sure. of all, uh, Vishnu. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, semiconductors is not the area that I look at personally, but from whatever I can tell you, in terms of, you know, where the world is going and what the world is speaking about, um, you know, we're, we're talking about America, we're talking about China. Semiconductor is really what's uh, building and, and what is really the future. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's some, and, and Vedanta has always been a company who likes to drive and likes to be a part of India's growth and development story. And, and what, uh, you know, what better than to, you know, foray into a space like semiconductors, which is really the root of everything technology. We, we, there is no technology in the world without semiconductor. And if India can play a role in, in developing that, absolutely, why not? And I guess uh, resilient supply chains is what Vedanta is also looking at. We saw the Prime Minister visit the United States. There's been so much talk about the importance of resilient supply chains, that semiconductors cannot just come from one or two places in the world. And India is so big, our economy is so large, which I suppose is why we need to have it all in-house. Absolutely. And I can, you know, coming back towards, uh, you know, our home territory of, of uh, mining and metal, yeah. you know, um, our Prime Minister has said 2070 net zero carbon India. For that, um, you know, we need 3 billion tons of metal. Now, do we want to spend, uh, you know, all our money importing that 
or we have we've only explored about 20% of the reserves that we have so you know it's 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 an area that is so key to our net zero carbon future it's the basis of the supply chain for for that to happen and uh, we as india have to now stop being a net importer we have to be net exporter we we have the capability right and uh, let's talk a little bit about sustainability since sure. it is such a big theme over here yes. at the world economic forum it's also core to your group's beliefs because it's not just your, the, the corporate beliefs it's also the india goals which you have to sort of work Absolutely. towards tell us a little bit about what you're doing so you know a few years ago the the term esg was coined and uh, we got mckinsey in to uh, to work with us and benchmark and really devise and, and tell us what is the best way forward for a natural resources company in the area of esg and and they came came up with nine goals made be net zero carbon before 2050 made be going water positive before 2030 made being impacting the lives of 100 million women and children these are the kind of targets that we've taken and set um along with mckinsey and you know we've set up a very powerful uh, committee to make mm -hmm. this happen mm -hmm. and today we're well on our way to achieving all of these goals you know where there's no looking back um we are the largest we have signed the largest contract for renewable power of 2 gigawatts um in, in the country in fact uh, you know the top 5 largest in the world and we've been the largest we've already been the largest consumer of uh, renewable power in the country and and these are these are areas that we're very very serious about and um, you know going forward you know even even the 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 metals that 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 we focus on we you know we're focusing on for example silver um for solar power for us to set up solar panel manufacturing silver is such a key ingredient um so it's 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 inevitable in what we do as well um you know the the entire um esg the entire uh, climate forecast plays plays a very very crucial role we've also committed 1 billion dollars um to electrify our entire fleet um we've we've had the first uh, underground mining vehicle um vehicle in the in the country uh, you know at Hindustan Zinc and we're going far beyond just environment we're we're empowering women women you know who, mm -hmm. women were not allowed to go underground in India in 2000 uh, since uh, in 2019 were they legalized Hindustan Zinc was the first company to get women underground right. and today we have women leading the way underground and it's it's amazing in mining operations in mining yeah. operations and they are doing heavy they they they're lifting forklifts they're the first women rescue team of India is at Hindustan Zinc and these women come to me and they tell me that the safest we feel is when we're underground so really you know that we we're looking at esg we're looking at you know uh, this this entire uh, in a very holistic manner and and we're very very uh, you know focused on making sure we achieve that i mean i can even talk about water positivity sure. uh, a lot of our um, plants are in water scarce areas of of rajasthan we're already water positive there more than 60% of our units are water positive right. already and we are looking at being water positive by 2030 across all units so very passionate project and we we will we will get there and there's the big demerger as well which your group has been focusing on tell us a little bit about that so the demerger is you know is is a strategic course of action and something that uh, you know we've we've taken uh, our shareholders account and we know that this is the right thing to do for everybody the 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 fact is that investors today want to invest in pure play models you know if if someone wants to invest in silver if someone wants to invest in recycling if someone wants to invest in in zinc you get the option of investing in the pure play model that you would like to invest in so it really is and 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 each of these um, you know uh, metals and each of these sort of industry whether it's you know you were talking about semiconductor we're talking about display all of them have such huge potential unless we demerge we can't really make sure that we maximize the potential for all of them so it it really is the sensible way forward 
Priya, wonderful speaking to you. Priya Agarwal Heber talking to us about Vedanta, all that the future holds, whether it's semiconductors or the entire belief in sustainability, the importance of the demerger which is taking place. Uh, one of the most exciting corporates in India, a significant presence over here at the World Economic Forum. One of the most uh, impressive developments over the last several years when it comes to letting millions around the world know about floods, droughts, um, the state of, uh, of the environment, the state of uh, particular areas is the easy availability or the relatively easy availability of satellite imagery. Uh, Planet Labs has been uh, at the forefront of this. They've revolutionized uh, Earth observation. Um, the highest frequency satellite data commercially available. Uh, Will Marshall, CEO of Planet, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Um, what are some of the key applications that you see with satellite imagery going forward? Well, look, uh, uh, satellite imagery really is in a re renaissance. Yes. We see a tremendous amount more imagery uh, that enables us to take care of the planet mm -hmm. in no short than that. Here in Davos, you see all the needs. Uh, we're trying to do digital transformation, sustainability transformation. We're trying to help peace and security with conflicts around the world. And what do you need from that? You need better awareness of what's going on on the planet. Hmm. At Planet Labs, we have 200 satellites that image the whole Earth every day to track changes. Um, you ask our applications, I mean, some of the key applications are in agriculture, where we can help farmers to improve crop yield and therefore reduce the amount of land that we need to feed everyone. Um, uh, we work with disaster response, you mentioned, right? So after floods and fires and earthquakes and, uh, and so on, we can bring in data quickly afterwards to help the relief operators, to help the Red Cross or to help the, the emergency re response. But perhaps more importantly, we can get ahead of that and do flood yeah. prediction, right? right? So some work we, we did with Google in yeah. India was yeah. um, mapping every year the change to the floodplains after the monsoon right. that then changes how yes. the water flows yes. and then uh, therefore which villages will be affected right. so that we can then warn ahead yeah. when there's going to be floods. Yeah. And warning ahead, of course, yeah. is much better for saving lives than uh, uh, doing it. After. And that, in a sense, is a key part of what you do, save lives. I mean, we've seen it where, you know, in the context of our own stories using your imagery on, in the Himalayas and glacial melt scenarios. Yeah. Uh, it must feel great that you know, this is information which was not there even 10, 15 years back, easy to access, which is now there. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, it's, it's very easily access accessible and available to anybody who needs it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key uh, objectives of Planet was not just to bring us more real-time information, uh, but also um, democratize access yes. to that. So it's not just the governments that can access this data. It is companies. It is that city um, or, uh, or state um, that's trying to monitor um, agriculture, or it is, or is that is that farmer that's trying to improve yeah. his or her crop yield? Right. Uh, but then I presume you do run into problems with government saying that hello, you've got your satellites watching every little bit of our country and the military installations, this, that, and the other. How do you address that? Concern, I'm sure you get these complaints. We do get uh, concerns. I mean, the fact is, we're in a new era. You yeah. have new, more transparency. And I think, ultimately, this is going to be a good thing. And I'm not dismissing the concerns. There are concerns. But <clears throat> what I would say is that the more we understand each other, if different countries understand what each other are doing, the more likely we'll have peace and, 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 and prosperity. Yeah. Because the fact is, if you look back in history, the times of war were when people didn't know what each other were doing. It was when we mistakenly assumed things. In the Cold War, classically, when the US had missiles in Turkey 
and the Russians didn't know, yeah. or vice versa, yeah. when the U Russians had yeah. missiles in Cuba and the U.S. didn't know, yeah. that's when you almost had a hot yeah, exactly. situation. Yeah. Um, when we all know about each other's activities, we're more likely to prepare and plan for that in a accordingly. So I think uh, transparency leads to accountability yeah. on the sustainability, and we've got to transition sure. to a sustainable economy, and helps en enable peace and security. A final question, are we in the future likely to see even higher resolution imagery? Because the moment you get into sub, what, five meter resolution, uh, then, then it becomes problematic to some. For journalists like me, it's billion, but yeah. Um, I, I, absolutely. I mean, the data is just going to get better and better. We're going to see more re higher resolution, more frequent. How soon? Um, well, um, even uh, we just launched the first tech demo of a satellite that will enable us to go from 50 centimeter resolution to 30 centimeter resolution. Yeah. So there's an improvement. Uh, but also spectral resolution will be improved. That means the number of colors. We see with three colors, red, green, and blue, yeah. um, but our satellites see in eight colors. Yeah. Our future satellites, we're launching some that will see in 400 colors, so enabling us to see all the different colors. And why does that matter? It means we can detect emissions of gas from mm. gas lines or cows, mm. or um, we can um, detect species of plant mm. from orbit and help with monitoring biodiversity. Mm. So the data is going to get better and better, but I think there's a more imp important development which is AI. Yes. What is happening with AI is revolutionizing what you can do with this data. Right. It's, it's enabling you to find anything across yeah. a whole large region. Yeah. It has big applications for defense and intelligence. Yes. It has big and important applications for democratizing yes. the value because in principle, anyone, just like you can get access to ChatGPT yeah. and suddenly understand more things and have things explained your way, this enables the personalization of satellite data. Sure. We are going to see a wave of AI on top of satellite data, yeah. in a, enabling and flourishing a field of applications on top of satellite data. Wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for sharing some time. Thank you, Thanks very much indeed. Well, there you have it. A look at what the future of uh, satellite imagery is. Planet really a, a global leader as far as that is concerned. Uh, let's see what the future holds. The restructuring of multilateral development banks has been seen as a, a key part of, uh, of India's G20 agenda. Uh, it was part of the B20 process uh, as well. Uh, there have been a couple of uh, very, very important documents which have been produced, uh, which have looked at the entire process of, of uh, restructuring multilateral development banks, some of the challenges and some of the opportunities which do exist if this process is carried out uh, in the way that it was supposed to be carried out. Uh, joining us now, uh, two key individuals associated with the entire process of uh, working towards restructuring multilateral development banks and, 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 and you know, producing these reports, uh, encasing with us and Lord Nicholas Stern as well. Thank you very much, much, sir, for being with us. Mr. Singh, let me come to you first. For a broader audience, why was it necessary to restructure multilateral development banks in the first place? Well, I think that that which, you know, goes to the core why is multilateral bank important at all? And what is, why is multilateralism important at all? Well, we believe that as against any other kind of bilateral or unilateral decision, the countries of the South are much better served in a multilateral framework than otherwise. And at the time, at the conclusion of the Second World War, two institutions called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Monetary Fund were created to serve the needs for the reconstruction of the global economy and thereafter 
they took shape in multiple ways the addition of additional dimensions more multilateral development banks came up it is a centerpiece of the international financial architecture right this restructuring was necessary for two reasons first to take into account the complexities of growth the original two mandate of these banks was poverty and shared prosperity but other things got added most importantly climate sec and we therefore needed not only the total volume but the availability of concessional finance along with the additional volume to address what i now we call the three agenda inextricably linked yeah. one the fape side of the other and it was necessary therefore to improve the lending capability from a modest 110 billion dollars which all multilateral development banks taken together yeah. to at least closer to around 400 billion dollars sure. and their restructuring and the modalities for restructuring therefore was an integral part of building a global financial architecture more in need and in sure. consonance with the new challenges which have emerged lord nicholas stern since you produced the report uh, the reports so, or and you were part of that process what progress have we actually seen towards implementation of some of the ideas we've seen the welcoming of the ideas which is the first step yes. in uh, implementation at the um, marrakesh annual meetings yes. of the world bank and the imf the g20 um, finance ministers and central bank governors meeting together welcomed the report and looked to uh, the next g20 presidency brazil to really get going on the implementation and at the same at the same meeting the central bank the same meeting the multilateral development bank presidents themselves also welcomed the report i don't know how many of your listeners take the uh, intricacies of multilateral language very seriously but welcome is quite a strong statement it is indeed i was in marrakesh and and we looked at at the release over there and and the welcoming uh, uh, you know i mean which was made but in terms of a timeline uh, what would you say would uh, a timeline be for um, implementing some of the key uh, suggestions which have been made oh now and there are many uh, suggestions which can be acted on really quickly um for example extra use of uh, guarantees um making better use of the capital that they have already by taking on uh, more risk and so on some of those things can be done and should be done starting from now yeah um but if you ask a, an institution particularly the 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 mdb multilateral development bank institutions to embark on a path where they strongly increase their uh, lending their financing they have to be confident they can continue right otherwise they hit as it were a brick wall which is their capital uh, constraints right so at the same time as they get moving now you have to indicate to them that when the capital increase is necessary some sooner some later depending on the bank that the shareholders rich countries poor countries particularly the rich countries will be ready to support them yeah so that indication should come now so that they can really start scaling up very quickly but we have no time to lose right. this next 5 10 years will be absolutely critical for the future of our planet and the standard of living and welfare particularly for the poorer people um what sort of transformative impact uh, can we now see uh, with um, you know the reform process of multilateral development banks hopefully starting right about now well i think that i is an ongoing process 
you need to restructure uh, in fundamental ways many of the processes and procedures of these multilateral development banks. So I think that the three very important aspects to which, on which I will focus on is the extent to which they are succeeding in optimizing their balance sheet. The capital adequacy framework report which we all know mm. set up under the Italian presidency endorsed by the Indonesians fully adopted mm. by our report really enjoins on them to optimize their balance sheet in multiple ways. For instance, recalibrating the equity loan ratio, yeah. in take, taking bolder decisions mm. in terms of making all multilateral development banks act as a family mm. instead of acting in silos. Mm. Those things can be done pretty quickly. Second, I do believe that the processes and procedures of these multilateral development banks, so to give you an example, Vishnu, an average time taken from the loan application to a World Bank to disbursement is 27 months, pretty atrocious act, things have changed. That should be brought down to perhaps 10 months or 8 months. Second, I think instead of really only waiting and doing on their own balance sheet, and that is crucial, of attracting private capital, we expect that 500 billion dollars of private capital is necessary. And what kind of changes and procedures and processes will enable the attraction of private capital. We have made some recommendations in our report, like on how to mitigate foreign exchange risk, on how to really more make more effective use of guarantees, how to make more effective use in terms of a blending between different kinds. So I think that private capital would be attraction of private capital. So I think that the volume of lending, yeah. the ability to optimize the balance sheet, changes in yeah. processes and procedures, and the attraction of private capital to meet the challenges of yeah. enlarged financing needs which is necessary to meet the challenges which the global economy faces today. Sir, doesn't this come with risks as well if you enhance the amount of lending that goes on? Um, you know, uh, questions would be asked on, on whether governments would be in a position to repay. Uh, therefore, uh, are there internal safeguards which exist? The most risky strategy of all is to do very little. Doing very little takes us into very dangerous territory. Territory which is not just bad for the planet, it's bad for the people of the planet, for their living standards, for the incomes across the world. That's the kind of risk that we run. So the most risky and unrealistic strategy, in our view, is to do very little. So we have to do a great deal more because we're talking about increases in investment in emerging markets and developing economies of three or four percentage points yes. of GDP. That's a major increase, but it actually is perfectly feasible. Uh, India itself has had much higher investment rates in the past than at the moment. It's perfectly possible to do those increases, but they're going to be majority private sector or close to majority private sector, and they cannot go there without the kind of risk sharing that um, my great friend and colleague N.K. Singh was talking about, sharing that risk. So they have to do it in a way where the multilateral development banks take on more of the risk than they have done in the past. Yeah. We speak about bigger, bolder, better. Right. Bigger is more financing, bolder is taking more risk, and better is all the ways of working more effectively that uh, NK has just uh, described. Yeah. If you do that, then you manage the risks better than we've done in the past. Will there be risks from this expansion? Of course. Mm -hmm. There will be much bigger risk from not doing it. Right. 
Mr. Singh, over here at the World Economic Forum, sustainable uh, climate is something which is something which is a key theme. Uh, financing sustainability is another issue altogether. Um, the move to new technologies requires capital investment. It requires the availability of capital funds in different markets across the world. Some nations more poor, some nations richer. Uh, how do you believe a reform in the multilateral bank scenario uh, can actually address that key concern on who pays for new technologies to avoid climate change? Well, you're frankly, this is a much larger issue because uh, I'm sure Nick would have wanted to add that if assuming that the world at the very base level requires $4 trillion a year in terms of investment, what we have given is to address the issue of $1 trillion, $500 billion coming from concessional and non-concessional finance, $500 billion coming from private capital, and the rest $3 trillion coming from domestic resource mobilization. Now that really entails deeper structural changes to improve the growth potential, the tax buoyancy of individual countries. And that's an area where I do believe that both the bank and the fund and multilateral development banks in general will have to work towards how to improve the domestic resource mobilization and capability of the countries themselves to be able to meet and manage a substantial part of the financial burden for a more orderly transition to an era of more sustainable growth. Would you like to add to that how the funds available in, in uh, multilateral development banks can actually result in a positive change? Uh, you know, to uh, avoiding or, or, or ensuring that we don't go beyond 1.5 degrees? The uh, reason that we've got into this difficult position of already being very close to 1.5 degrees is because we have not invested enough in the new, the new and the clean. And it's investment in the new and the clean that allows us to avoid the investment and indeed run down some of the capital in the old and the dirty. But you've got to have the new and the clean. So what this investment is about is in large measure, particularly in the energy sector, creating the new and the clean. And that will in involve two, three, four percentage points of GDP. But this is investment for growth. Yeah. It is the clean is cheaper than the dirty yeah. across uh, most of electricity close to clean, clean, cheaper than the dirty, through much of road, surface, transport mm -hmm. now through uh, electric uh, vehicles. It's where the big innovation comes. This is about um, energy and resource efficiency. Efficiency is productivity, is growth. Cities where you can move and breathe and be productive, and we all know that moving and breathing in Delhi is a bit problematic. Move, <laughs> yeah. Cities like that move, breathe, more productive. But one are. of the advantages, uh, to just elaborate on a point that Nick has made, India, Vishnu, is in a particularly advantageous position in being able to make a more orderly, informed transition, because the bulk of our investments have yet to be made, and harnessing, therefore, technology, which you were mentioning, in a more meaningful way, India has the great advantage of making these more informed choices right. than many other countries. Yeah. And so this is perhaps in some ways God's blessing to what re really may have been a latecomer in the whole development game. Uh, 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 yes, please go ahead, sir. If you look at India's likely infrastructure in 2050, 80%, 80% is yet to come. Yeah. If that can be clean and uh, efficient, 
and uh, easy to use, then that is enormously beneficial for the whole of the Indian population, producers and uh, consumers. And we've seen that India has the entrepreneurship to make that happen. Yeah. But it does involve increasing investment and it does involve managing the risk yeah. of that investment. There, the in, internally in India, domestic resource mobilization is very important, but so too the external partnership with the MDBs. Yeah. A final question to you, sir. You've been here for how many uh, World Economic Forum? God knows. I lost count of it, but it began very much a very, very long time ago. How has it changed? I would say in three ways. First and foremost, I think in terms of the complexity of the World Economic Forum keeping pace. Uh, Vishnu, I don't know when you came first. Five years back. But uh, before that, the number of hotels, the number of people, the number of stakeholders, the number of corporates who came here, the diversity has changed beyond recognition. So that's one big change. Second, when I initially came, India was a comparatively nascent story. Right. People were watching with very eyes will it, which way it will go in terms of political stability yeah. and economic decision making. So that was the general mood for yeah. many years. Yeah. That has been third and final a tectonic shift that in terms of India becoming a favorite destination and a favorite capital for global investors in terms of having a, an economic policy which is far-sighted, a political leadership deeply committed to growth, deeply committed not only to inclusive growth and poverty alleviation, mm -hmm. but deeply committed to addressing issues of efficient infrastructure enhancing its domestic resources, export capability, and harnessing technology in a manner which is more meaningful. I'd like to thank both of you very much for joining us. The reform of multilateral development banks absolutely critical going forward. It's something which directly impacts the lives of billions around the world.